Hello and welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, we review it, we talk about it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations for further reading inspired by the film of the week. Before we kick off with the, the film proper, we have a little catch up on what we've been watching this week since our last record. So Sam, what has been gracing your screen since we last spoke? Well, I've seen one film at the cinema, and... Um, and... It is the um, the recent Steven Spielberg, I suppose blockbuster would be a strange word to use for it, but it's been fairly widely touted as his new big thing. It's the BFG, Old Dial's BFG. Um, and this is, it, this is in gen, generally very good. Um, it's very E.T.-like, as you expect from the same director... Sort of children-focused film. It's also the same writer, um, a writer whose name I forget. Who sadly passed away recently. Roald Dahl. No, no, the sorry, the screenwriter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, you teach English, yeah. sir. This shouldn't be hard for you. Yeah, it was not recent, is there? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't remember it being absolutely amazing. So on Sunday, but um, I just had a clip of it on the. Uh, Five Live film show and just reminded me of how good Mark Grimes' performance was as it was it was he, he's just brilliant the girl playing Sophie Ruby Barnell was it, I didn't think she was amazing but maybe it was just a sign of me being heartless because other people seem to think that things so. um, and at the beginning she was certainly very good and it was good to have a nice Strong, outspoken, clear, young, impressive female role model. Um, so that, that was it was an enjoyable experience all that. Okay, brilliant. I have been watching. Uh, uh, well, I despite in the last few weeks not really going to cinema much because of uh, my wife's being heavily pregnant. I have this weekend actually managed to catch up a couple of films um, that have been sitting on our, our to watch list. First of which was the film from this year actually. Eddie the Eagle, starring Taron Egerton and Hugh Jackman, telling the true, or at least inspired by true events, story of Eddie the Eagle, the um, ski jumper from the Calgary Olympics. It's one of those characters that I feel the Brits embrace heavily, and he probably hasn't had quite the impact worldwide that he has over here. Um, but basically, it's it's the story of a slightly awkward, funny everyman who decides to become a Olympic athlete, basically, and in his trials and tribulations to overcome prejudice, his ability, and everything else to become a, um, a ski jumper. It is grounded in reality, it comes from a real place, but it is a very funny film, and I would question how much of the plot probably is real. Um, but that being said, it was a lot of fun. I was genuinely tense during his ski jumps. I was pulled into the film, and I, I, uh, I just, I, it was just, it was just, it was just really good. It was a really nice, fun family film for us at the end. Melissa Matheson was the um, screenwriter who wrote E.T. and the BFG. She died in November last year. That's okay. that's her meant, not Roddard. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, my second one is very much the other end of the spectrum, and that's Dope, 
which is a film from last year about three geeks, well, certainly one geek, um, growing up in a tough neighbourhood in LA, uh, running from drug dealers and gangs, um, blood and crips and violence of the streets and that kind of thing. It is somewhere between a comedy and a really hardcore street drama. Um, It's part road trip movie, I suppose, part high school movie, part coming of age, part training day. It's very funny. It's a lot of fun as well. And I think it's got one of the opening, the best opening five minutes of interesting characters I've seen in a long time. Uh, The director's Rick Famuiwa. I probably pronounced that brutally. And you wouldn't recognise many of the actors um, in it. Uh, They're all very much kind of unknown actors. Um, but it's it's well worth time checking out. If you are into that kind of thing, it's very amazing. I think it's... I'm probably stepping on some horrendous uh, toes here. It's one of those films that gets very heavily marketed towards the black market. And so being a middle-class white guy, we tend to miss out on, on these films. But if you are looking to step beyond your normal films, it's very, very, very good. And the director is making The Flash next. The uh, the DC comic book film. I'm just looking at it now on IMDb. So who is oh this Rick Flammy? Yeah, I see what you mean. I always feel like a terrible, terrible white person whenever I look at names. I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'll brutalise that in the British way. Saying it loudly, you know, loud. It's not how you speak foreign languages. No, apparently not. Oh, good. Right, let's um. On with the Vaughan Supremacy, which is the next film in our franchise. Two years ago. This your store? It's a little hard to find. Jason Bourne walked away from his past. Never to look back again. But his past never stopped looking for him. Great! How? Jason, I don't want you to do this. We don't have a choice. Bourne's Supremacy is the second film in the Bourne franchise and the first directed by Paul Greengrass, who took over from Doug Lyman for this um, 2004 sequel. Uh, Matt Damon returns, as does... Frank Potenti as Marie, right at the very start. Um, Brian Cox is back as Ward Albert and his new junior, after the demise of his previous juniors, played by um, Joan Allen. Um, and Jason Bourne's attempt to recover details of his past continues. Um, and that's coupled with his search for justice after Marie is killed. And that's no spoiler. She's killed at the very beginning of the film um, in an attempt to hit on Bourne. And there's an armed intervention at the start that goes wrong and Bourne is blamed for. Um, but that's basically all you need to know in advance. Uh, Rob, your thoughts? Now, I saw this film when it came out, which was a good 12 years ago now, and I remember being wholly unimpressed with it, following on from what at that time was the kind of revolutionary 
and Border Identity, I was very unimpressed with the follow-up. Watching it back now, I actually really like it. I think that some ham-fitted moments, especially in getting rid of Marie early on, like it, that they couldn't just uh, had to bring her back and get rid of them. That seemed a bit a bit clunky in terms of story. Mm-hmm. But I like I like him as Bourne. I like Pamela Landry as a new kind of sort of bad guy. And I did like the uh, and we'll talk spoilers um, straight away, guys. So uh, if you haven't seen it, check out now. I like the reveal of Ward Abbott, Brian Cox as as the traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, very often, I think that sequels and trilogies try and reframe the first film. So you get the well, this is what was really going on in the first film, and it undercuts some of that first film. Um, undercut some of the uh, importance of the film whereas here the idea that Brian Cox had betrayed someone else um, at some point that worked here like, it didn't ruin anything from that first film it just gave it more depth I think that's mm. an important sort of line to draw Jen Allen was great I, I mean I've always been a fan of Carl Urban as uh, I think it's called Kirill here um, as the Russian Jason Bourne who frames him and said to kill him Mm. I, I thought it was good. I think Matt Damon, for all his uh, faults as an actor, is very good in this. I just, I really liked it. It's very much the middle film in an ongoing franchise, and I will talk more about that later on. I think, but I think uh, I, I myself rendered it. Right, we'll go back to your Matt Damon for all his faults comment later, um, <laughs> and uh, this this idea of this film within a franchise is an, it's an interesting one as well um, that's something else to go back to this I I remember seeing this film and having as we established last week enjoyed the first one more than Rob um, I had bought into this um, franchise more at the time and I really liked this sequel um, I was apprehensive hearing that it had a new director and I really think they're worried because it, let's just talk about how good Paul Greengrass is as a director and this the first note I made was about this being darker than the first film and it's literally darker the palette that Greengrass uses and he shot almost entirely on handheld cameras so that you had this sort of it's, it's been described in places as a documentary style to it mm. so there's something real and gritty about it um, in the way that it's this muted way that it's presented um, Can I just interject which, there quickly before we move on? Yes as listeners may know, my background is in is in film colour, so I do have to comment on this. That mm. this film is darker but far more colourful than the original. Aha. The first so one what you mean by that. So the first one, like you it wasn't as visually dark mm. but it was very washed out, like it was everything was in muted greys and browns and tinges of beige and all that kind of thing. Nothing where it was like visually popping. Whereas on this it's a lot darker, so you're right, you don't get that kind of, you don't see everything in the shot, but you certainly do see all the bright colours especially um, in Thailand at the, at the start you have like, the bright blue of the sea outside and the bright orange inside 
so in Berlin you have that bright glowing yellow lights and they do a lot more about having these mm. brighter colours even though it actually is darker to see what is lit has more colour infused into it and mm. I think that's partly about if we want to look at it from a, a filmic theory point of view it's about Born coming back to life in many ways and they use colour here too. he was happier in, in Thailand so you had kind of more colours there and when he kind of comes off off the um, plantation a little bit it kind of mutes down a little bit and then kind of the colours ebb and flow through the film depending on how he's feeling and then right at the end the shot of the shots of New York are back to being full colour because you've then got him kind of coming into his own again that's interesting I was and I, I was thinking about colour right at the beginning when you have the botched uh, payoff operation that Kirill and is is the name Kirill he interrupts yeah it's Kirill yeah um, and you see him going through the process of framing Bourne and then taking out the people involved but there is a moment in one of those shots where. Carell is doing something, and you can hear the film continue. I mean, the mm. music continues, and it's it's John Powell again, same guy doing the soundtrack, and the music continues, and the sound of of what he's doing continues, but it's pitch black, and then suddenly you, it's like you turn a corner and you see what he's doing, and he's setting a charge on one of the lines in the in the uh, power box, um, but there's. I just just noticed that change from dark to light, very intense light, and it the, the film didn't wait for you. It's the confidence of the director. I don't need to show. I don't need to show you every little thing of what's happening here. You get the gist. And it's not about the exact buttons he pushes for a bomb or the thing he does. It's about that flow and you knowing that the audience are so invested in this. And also, this is where you talked about earlier about the handheld camera. That makes it real because for a long time we were raised on steady cams and dolly shots, and the idea that a film, it says in inverted commas, is smooth and polished, and documentary is handheld and raw. By using that aesthetic here, it's making it, he's bringing the aesthetic and the audience's perceptions and preconceptions of how a film works with them from documentary to film. So you expect documentaries, there are bits where you may not have a clue what's going on. You know, any documentary that's got actually a filmed on location material, there'll be bits where, you know, it pans the floor as they run or something like that. You, you expect to not be able to understand every single visual image because you'll understand the scene as a whole. And by bringing that with us, Green Gas can use that and give us four seconds of black in the middle of the film. Mm. But no one's turning off, no one's being jumped out of it because of this. And then... Because you have that documentary realism, the use of handheld cameras for mm. much of it, when when he actually goes back to steady cams or you get a wide shot, it's much more striking. Like you have you have that the scene with Born off the Roof and talking to Landy down in the office. And you have lots of switching viewpoint and there are various handheld cameras and you see the as they're talking. You see the viewpoint switching between two of them, and then suddenly mm. he says, "She's standing right next to you," and it switches to a wide shot of the whole roof, and it's suddenly you, you notice how still the shot is. 
you've you've gone from documentary realism to Green Grass going, bang, there is there is a filmic shot. Exactly. I mean, he, he uses camera to great effect and great storytelling ability on top of the, the narrative of the actual action, shall we say. What do you think about the... I mean, this is something we talked about last week. What do you think about the pacing of this film? I think it's hard to say because the film does in many ways forego the traditional three-act structure that most films kind of... Hmm go for you know the call to action all of that kind of stuff it's kind of thrown out the window here but I think that's where you get into the the power or the beauty and even the, the death of a franchise because all the work was done in the first one to set up why he does the things he does what his motivations are why he would do like we understand from the first film why Bourne would do the things he does and why he operates the way he does so the audience doesn't need prompting in that he doesn't need it promoting it. Mm. How this is how Bourne works. They know how Bourne works, and I think that there's that the means that in a second or third film, films can throw off the structure that they're used to. The film used to because the audience goes with them. I think sometimes this can lead to a mess of a film, and I'm, I'm sure we can all quote examples where sequels don't live up to the originals for this very reason. But at the same time, here it means they can kind of change that structure and change the flow of the film and this is where we get on to the um, moving into the third one as well as we'll look at next week but this was not meant to be an extended franchise Greengrass was brought in to deliver a sequel a one-off sequel this is always meant to be a two-film series mm. and you get that with the ending Actually, the ending was supposed to be with Nessie's daughter, and they thought, "Well, no, this is too bleak. We're going to have a coda with Land in New York." But this was—that was always going to be the ending. It was Jason Bourne showing his humanity, coming to terms with what had happened. He discovered things about his past. He'd got over to some extent the loss of Marie, and he'd moved on. And that shot of him walking away into the crowd in New York was supposed to be the end of Bourne. And then, famously, it wasn't. Mm. So they brought Green Rice back and said, well, you've got to make a third film out of this now. And this is why the the third film feels a little weird, the way it connects to the second film. Well, and that's something we can talk about next week. I think it's interesting to, to mention here that Bourne is our third franchise. We looked at Blues Brothers. We looked at, excuse me, in the Air Jones. We've looked at the Bourne um, franchise. This is the first film in the last you know, six, seven weeks that can't stand on its own. All of the indie mm. films exist as a solo story. Yes, you know who indie is, but they exist as a whole story in one in one like loop in one bubble. Blues Brothers the same. Yes. Both films exist as a bubble. This is the first film where. If you haven't seen the first one, doesn't if you haven't seen the first one, this film makes no sense. You can't go in at the supremacy. You have to have watched Identity first, otherwise there's no continuity. Mm. I think that's where we get into like this. This is a wider question about the nature of a franchise and when a sequel becomes a franchise, or is every trilogy a franchise? And we have to we end up asking questions about when we use the phrase franchise. What do we mean? What are we saying about them? Is it just a series of films? Your thoughts? 
Hmm. I was just thinking about that. that maybe in order to be a franchise, in order to have grown into a franchise, they need to be standalone films. But then, Star Wars is an obvious franchise, and that's a long story, and you need to have to followed it from the beginning. I suppose the question is, then, if Born had ended after this film, if it had just hmm. been two films, would we class it as a franchise? No, definitely not. Or would it just be a sequel? Yeah. I really don't think so. And I think the change in director, the change in mood, change in sort of visual tone that we've talked about already is is part of this. That it it, it feels like a very different film, the first one. And I I I really mm. like the first film and I I really like this one, but in in a different way. Um I think these are two very different films, and I think if it just existed in the in that standalone form that they were going for from the beginning, um, I don't know much about the Lovelands that it's based on, um, and I know the first one and this one were directly based on Loveland novels. I don't I don't know beyond that, um, but certainly I I wouldn't have wouldn't have called it a franchise. I suppose for me, a franchise, if we if we use the the non-filmic term of franchise, tends to imply taking the elements of something and taking it somewhere else. Mm. So a McDonald's franchise, if you buy a French McDonald's, you get to use the logo and the the, the um, menu and the branding and all that kind of stuff, mm. but you run it yourself. And that's I think that's for me where a film series can become a franchise when A, as you say, that there are standalone stories in this. And to, to pull back a little bit, we were just discussing whether we do in the future where we can look at things like Harry Potter. And I would I think we can talk about in this sh- in this show, but I wonder whether that is a franchise or whether that's just a film series. Hmm. Because there is one overarching story and it's clearly a one vision for a story. Whereas in a franchise you tend to have differing visions um, if you look at Die Hard Die Hard is four or five outstanding stories that ends and they stand mm. alone well outstanding um, I think, as well but... <laughs> oh, some some of <laughs> um, we'll do that in time um, but like, the Bourne supremacy at this point doesn't feel like a franchise it mm. feels like a sequel I think and I imagine we'll Next week we'll come on to it being a, a franchise. I think then that maybe Star Wars, as Lucas planned it right at the start, wasn't a franchise. Because it was an overarching narrative. Mm-hmm. It was a series of compartmentalised chapters in the same story. And then very quickly, because of its success and the success that the merchandising had and the longevity of certain characters he and others realised that this was a franchise they'd got so maybe mm. maybe it's it's not even so discreet as saying this is a series and this is a franchise maybe a series can become a franchise I mean it may be something yeah. I would totally agree and, and, and that's what I'm saying with, with the supremacy at this point 
if we take off the if we're watching it in order at this point in our viewing we aren't watching a franchise we're watching a film and it's completion mm. in the next film next week is when we start moving into a franchise world yeah and this is that's something that i would argue we only got into in the latter half of the last decade very i mean there was a very serious movement towards franchises um from well, i suppose from from 2006-2007 onwards, but making a franchise became the thing you did in the film. And you have things like the building of the MCU and um, returning mm. to Star Wars as examples. But and and partly that's a commercial decision. That's a we can make money out of these things. But also that seems to be where filmmaking is going. That that a series of films has to be a franchise now and and maybe that's that's only grown in importance recently and i i agree and i think we can at some point down the line talk about the uh the rise and commercialization of i suppose of mm. intellectual property in a way that we haven't seen previously um and i think that that's quite interesting to talk about and we'll just moving on before we round off the day i wanted to highlight one thing that you mentioned earlier as well which is the scene between Bourne and nesky's mm. daughter um and we discussed last week about how Bourne was in many ways the construction of bond and how it's a reaction to bond and for me that that scene is exactly what i like about the Bourne films is you understand the consequences the human consequences of an action of a spy. Mm. Bond, you know, Bond doesn't. And famously in in Austin Powers, it was spoofed. You had these, you know, the call to the wife after he kills a um, after he kills a minion, you know, telling her that that that, that, uh, that person had died. But Bond never cares. Never gets involved in the death of a of, of a nun. He just kills and moves on. And here you've got the first person that Bond never killed, having to deal with the fallout of that mm. 10 years later yeah and uh, that i really like that scene i thought it was a really powerful scene because it is clearly set in opposition to everything yeah. before it yeah you see that born isn't just and th- this is something else that greengrass has said about about this film and the born films in general that everything that he does everything that he works with is something that is available to normal human beings. You don't have him using a gadget mm. that someone like Q would have developed and isn't really accessible. You have no. him fighting with a biro, for example. So you you have Bourne doing real things. And like a real person, he has to deal with the consequences of what happens. I think that's... I'm glad that that's still carrying on, and as we go more through the series, I, I will be intrigued to see how much of that ethos stays with the series. To round off, Sam, any recommendations for us? Yes. So this week, um, I've got one. Um, well, I think the two, two, two major people involved in this film were the principal actor and the director um, so I've got one Matt Damon recommendation and one Paul Greengrass recommendation the Matt Damon recommendation is um, a f- 
film quite recently, although we said that five years ago. It's the Adjustment Bureau, which was part conventional espionage thriller, part romance, part a little bit of The Matrix. It was a bit weird in mm. quite an interesting way at times. And it was it was Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, and it was surprisingly good. So that's the recommendation for me this week. And my second recommendation, it's rare for me that I recommend wholeheartedly two films that I actually advocate watching, but that's what I'm doing this week. My second recommendation this week is the Paul Greengrass film from 2013, Captain Phillips. And there are great acting performances from everyone, and Tom Hanks was fated as the great central performance, and he's very good, but some of the... Lots of the the local pirates acted by um, unknown foreign actors speaking their own language were also very good. They were great, some great performances. Um, it's not a it's not an easy easy film to watch. It's not a particularly uplifting film in places, but it is a thoroughly good film. Excellent. I've never seen it myself, but I have heard many good things. Very good. Rob. This week. So, my recommendations this week. I've taken two equally important uh, involvement in the film, but different ones to yourself. So, the writer of, or the writer of the screenplay of The Bourne Supremacy is Tony Gilroy. And Tony, in 2000, wrote a film called Proof of Life. Proof of Life stars Meg Ryan and Russell Crowe and David Morse. Meg Ryan's husband, David Morse, is kidnapped and Russell Crowe is the negotiator trying to get her back. It is half spy espionage trying to get this thing, half awkward romantic drama between Meg Ryan and Russell Crowe as they fight to get Meg Ryan's husband back. It handles the relationship between the two of them and the awkwardness of them falling in love whilst trying to rescue her husband beautifully. I think Meg Ryan and Russell Crowe both kind of and David Moore's a little bit have kind of fallen off the, the A-list in the last couple of years. But it's something like this where you realise how good they can be when they are on top of their game. Um, so that's 2000 Proof of Life. It was big at the time, but it's kind of disappeared since. So I'm kind of putting a, a vote in there for that. Right. My second film um, is equally a film that was big at the time and disappeared since. Um, and that's the 1998 film from Gary Ross, Pleasantville. Pleasantville is about... It's quite a strange film. It's a very 90s film. It's about two 1990s teenagers who find themselves transported into the world of a 50s sitcom in America. It's black and white. It is about them bringing modern sensibilities back to a 50s world and the slow erosion of the staid and prim principles of the time. Primarily, this is used through the world of colour. That The film is in colour in modern day and it's black and white everything's black and white when they're transported into the sitcom but as people free themselves of their their roles of their restrictions of their their prejudice the world they live in blooms into colour Joan Allen stars in it who is Pamela Landry in this Uh, she's Betty Parker in this great support from William H. Macy Jeff Daniels J.T. Walsh Tobey Maguire Reese Witherspoon it's one of those films that a lot of people kind of go, oh yeah, it's really good. 
but I think these this day and age it isn't quite as well known as it once was. So I'm 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 sticking my my oar in the sand and saying this is a film that is worth seeing. Great. Right then, we we move on next week with the next in the Bourne films. The we do. Bourne, what's the next adjective? Ultimatum. Noun. The Bourne uh, ultimatum. Noun. Ultimatum. Yes. Ultimatum. Uh, um, you can get in touch with both of us on Twitter, and we welcome your interaction. And um, the handle is at Prestige Podcast. Or you can find just me, Rob, at Rob Koji. You can find just me at life underscore academic. And we'll see you here next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.